This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Hi, Georgie here. In today's episode, we talk about urinary incontinence, which impacts one in three women. I interview Luce Brett. She's the author of PMSL, or How I Literally Pissed Myself Laughing and Survived the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. Luce shares her incredible story about the long journey she dealt with after she had her son at the age of 30. She offers words of wisdom and learnings as well as solutions. She was recently written up in the New York Times and based on all the emails she received and the types of questions and stories she heard, it is very clear this is a topic worth talking about. Before we dive in, a couple of announcements. Number one, if you can believe it, this is the last episode of season one. Season two will be resuming in January. Secondly, if you do have questions for me, feedback, ideas for topics and guests that you would like me to have, please do email me at georgie at fempower-health.com. And if you want to stay in touch, please do follow me on Instagram at fempowerhealth. And of course, uh, please do share this episode or any others that you've loved along the way with your friends, because I do believe that the more women have this information at their fingertips, that is how we're going to transform women's health. And I don't want to say goodbye yet until I say thank you to each of you, my listeners, my supporters, and my 32 guests. This has been an incredible year, and honestly, I didn't even set out to do a podcast, and now that I did, I have definitely found my happy place. I appreciate the experts who've made the time to join this podcast, who've answered the tough questions because women do have a right to know all the information, so they are empowered to make the right choices for them. So I thank you all for your support of women's health and for doing everything you can to transform it in a positive way. So without further ado, let's start talking to Luce. And a special thank you to Luce because this is admittedly the second recording. We had some technical difficulties with the first one, and she was gracious enough to make additional time, even with her crazy busy schedule. But honestly, this is an even better episode. So take a listen. Tell us what happened. And I I especially wanted you to react to a quote in your book. So I'm going to turn to the page now and kind of start from why you had stated this. So you said it's on page 50 of the book. I cannot, cannot, cannot listen to any more standard advice that feels like it's for someone else. So there may be people out there who have urinary incontinence, who have shame, don't know what to do about it, don't think they can do anything. And it sounds like you really went through the ringer. Maybe you could start by helping us understand why you wrote that in the book and what you learned through your journey. So I had incontinence post-childbirth. And I think 
I meant a couple of things by that. One is I really genuinely felt that I had absorbed every useless bit of information about incontinence, which surrounds all of us. And there are lots of things. There's shame about it. There's sort of laughing at the kid in the playground who's wet themselves. There's this idea that it's connected to old people or drunk people or sick people and that sort of thing. But even more pervasive for women, I think, is an idea that it's just sort of something they have to put up with, like, you know, men condescending them and the gender pay gap. And it's just kind of also something that just happens as a result of having kids so it just happens as a result of having menopause or a female body so I had all that and then when I had a baby and I started leaking and people were sort of saying things a bit like oh you know I can't go for a run and I was thinking well I can't go for a run but I also can't walk up the stairs but people keep telling me it's normal are all women really walking around unable to even pick up their baby without leaking is this just me making a fuss about something everybody has or is it worse for me I couldn't contextualize what had happened to me at all and when you get to a certain age Facebook and everything also people start advertising these products that often aren't really especially on the radar for younger people or not without them just being seen as silly or icky like the sort of adult diapers and the adult pads and when I saw those adverts they usually featured a woman a bit older than me looking really really happy that she was wearing a pair of paper knickers and saying how great she felt and I thought I don't feel great when I put this on I feel unsexy and I wish I could go and exercise and I think I'm putting on weight and I hate it and I'm worried about smelling and I I don't think I think people can hear me rustling if I wear too many pads and all that sort of stuff so that's what I mean I felt like even when there was information it was either aimed at older women but even when it was I think maybe in an attempt to make people not feel bad about themselves it was kind of normalizing that incontinence is okay and sort of quite fun or a bit of a laugh and not much and I was thinking even those funny jokes people tell like it's not really that funny, is it, to, to um, wet yourself on the doorstep or to get onto a trampoline and wet yourself at a kid's party? That's not actually that much of a laugh. It wasn't funny to wet myself in the supermarket. It wasn't funny when I laughed in front of my parents-in-law and wet myself. And that's what I mean. So I felt that there was just so much information, but it was quite top line. None of it addressed the emotional side of it. And there really wasn't very much of it for if you were only early 30s or only had one baby. It was mostly aimed at menopausal women, which is understandable because lots of people who suffer from incontinence are older but as a young woman in that situation I just felt completely bewildered because there was all the misinformation and then when there was info it wasn't for me or it didn't ring true I mean I don't think lots of people do feel that great all the time when they're incontinent I just don't think they do not always anyway right and I like how you're speaking about it because I I want to give you kudos for the self-awareness you had about that experience because In doing this podcast, a lot of what I hear is how women feel dismissed by their doctors. And what you're helping remind me of, and hopefully the listeners, is that sometimes it's even society or even ourselves where, like, I remember when I, when you talked about the uh, happy woman in the diapers, I remember when I first had my son and they had the picture of the mom giving their kid a bath and their first (laughs) bath and the kid is smiling. I was laughing. I'm like, I'm going to show the video of what it was actually like to give my son his first bath next to the picture that they're trying to pitch me and say, this is not reality. So, so I agree with you. It's, it's not just going to doctors and I'm not saying every doctor dismisses, but in cases where women have felt dismissed, it's, it's really everywhere. So how would you say that you transitioned from those frustrations to what I would call empowered to the point where you're writing a book that is getting rave reviews and and getting global recognition 
to really change the, the conversation about urinary incontinence? Well, I think so. It was it wasn't a short journey. It took a few years. I had a second child and I had quite a lot of treatment and I had quite a lot of conservative treatment and conservative treatment improved things a bit, but not not that well for me. Um, and I'm unusual in that, that it helps lots of people have um, doing kegels and exercises and physiotherapy. And then um, I had a surgery as well and uh, quite a big surgery. And one thing that happened there that really sort of was one of the turning points was the doctor said to me well you've been sick for a long time and I had never really thought of myself as unwell just sort of trapped in this kind of weird surreal nightmare where it was like a superhero inverted you know I was like simultaneously this like career mum and <laughs> had these little kids and everything's great and a nice marriage and also just feeling really disgusting all the time but when that operation didn't quite work either certain things started to emerge like I started to research around it and I found out that there's really strong links between incontinence and depression and not many people had brought that up with me so I'd spent about seven years thinking that I wasn't coping with serious incontinence very well and there must be all the other patients who are wetting themselves a lot or leaking are not at all depressed and it was just me and it, and it wasn't and I was quite furious about that the patient information was very poor about making that link and then I experienced some worse incontinence which was bowel incontinence and that really was kind of devastating I ended up signed up off work because I was so sort of broken by it but um the links with that and depression are just enormous and when I spoke to my family doctor about it she said oh in 20 years nobody's ever spoken about it to me the emotional side and I thought well then somebody needs to and so I started sort of immersing myself weirdly in this world I mean I always think PMSL is is I love this book it was my dream book you know and, and when I was 19 it wasn't the book I thought I would write when I went to university to study English it wasn't right. what I thought was going to be my passion the you know the more I found out the more outraged I was not just for my personal circumstances but actually far more for everyone really because we don't live in a world that's very kind about like disgusting or embarrassing illnesses and when you start to see the statistics, like around one in three women, one in four, it varies a bit country to country, um, one in 10 or 11 women will suffer bowel leakage post-childbirth, all these sorts of stats, they're enormous. If incontinent people got together, we'd be like the third biggest country in the world. It's like, we really should be kind of kinder, right? Because it affects so many of us. And, and similar conditions that I also had, like prolapse, you know, that's like nearly 50% of women. It's, it's a lot of people. And it just felt so silly that because of a bit of embarrassment and social taboo, we weren't really helping people. So there was that. And then the other thing was I noticed that when I talked about it, other women came and spoke to me too. And it's happened much more since the book with men, women and men. Um, when I did a, I was in a piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago. I'm really privileged. Yes, to be I in saw it. that. Congratulations, by the way. That's awesome. Th Oh, thank you. And it was a lovely piece. But what was extraordinary was people were writing in and there were lots of different viewpoints expressed. But we had letters from people saying that people who really were quite elderly in their 80s and 90s, people talking about having suffered from these injuries and, and birth incontinence for years and years and years. Men talking about how they'd never been able to have a conversation with their wife about it. And, and I just thought it would be really, really much nicer for so many people if we found a way right to get over all the things, the shame, the embarrassment. The mess that causes because the more embarrassed people are they don't donate to continence charities people don't research it you know so the book is like my personal story and it's very personal and sometimes quite raw but it's also a much bigger story about I don't know like you say like empowerment or resilience and and finding out more and what that means and that there's a much bigger story here that we could all sort of learn from I think and learn how to be kind of nicer to each other and more yeah, forgiving no. 
Absolutely. So let me ask you this, because I, I always find it helpful, and, and I hope that the audience is interested in this, because I, I think it is important, is the dynamics of how things work with conditions like this when it comes to the role of the patient as well as the healthcare provider, right? For example, like I've spoken to uh, sexual health experts and they'll tell me like, we're not trained, generally speaking, unless we become a sexual health expert, we're not trained in medical school to talk about sex. So we're uncomfortable. So when people come to us, we're not sure how to handle. Do you find that there could be an equivalence to that with urinary incontinence? So is it patients don't bring it up because they don't know to or they're embarrassed or when they bring it up, maybe you find that sometimes clinicians in some cases don't know how to handle? Is it that there isn't enough proactive conversation? Is it a little bit of everything? Like, where do you see the gap in the journey? Yeah, so I think that there's quite a lot of things going on. So I think there is a lot of shame and embarrassment. So many, many women don't go and get help, partly because they're shamed and embarrassed or even worse, they believe this sort of insidious lie that it's just a natural part of being a woman and there's no cure for it. And actually for many, many women, there's a cure or a treatment. And we've known this for years and years and years, decades. And, you know, I'm not blaming anyone, by the way. Of course, of course, none of us are. We have to be real about this, right? (laughs) And and I think that, um, and it's easy for women who say do their kegels and they don't work and they actually need a bigger intervention like a surgery or um, to use a a device or something. Those women can feel very cowed and as if that they, you know, they've made a mistake, they've not done it right. That's not true either. If you have any kind of issues, you just need to get them looked at. And then, as you say, there's the next barrier. So in my I've had lots of good experiences from people being very kind. But boy, have I heard some terrible experiences since writing this book. Um, I have one woman who said to me, her doctor had said, you know, oh, there's nothing that can be done for that. And she and she said, oh, after I read your book, I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go back to my doctor. And I said, OK. And she said, and I suppose it was the 1970s. It was online, so I hadn't realised how old she was when she was talking to me. So she'd been incontinent for 40 years because the doctor had said, well, there's nothing that can be done about that. And then just last night, I was speaking to someone incredibly senior broadcast journalist in the UK, quite a famous face, whose doctor had told her there was nothing could be done. And you think, even now, that's hard. Obviously, in some parts of the world, I'm very lucky. I live somewhere where there's a good health service and there are commitments about maternal health, but some people don't. I think the other problem we have is this societal so societal thing and in, in, in medicine and I think this is quite global we, women like their post-birth body is until the baby's six weeks old or 12 weeks old or three yeah. months or you know at the best what a year and I'm 43 and my eldest child is now a, t- a man you know and he or nearly a man and he um my body's still my post-birth body it's still got issues from being a, you know a birthing body and there are you know and that would be true whether he'd survived the birth or not you know that's right that that would be my lot and I think that we don't really accept that and that's part of an even bigger picture which affects us and society and medics which was is this idea of treating women's bodies and how they change and how they age especially around birth and menopause as kind of inconvenient and embarrassing and something women should just sort of sort out themselves yeah, and I absolutely. think that that's sort of pervasive globally. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, I think the other thing that happens, and this is really sad and stressful, but it's true. It's horrible to talk about, but I'm going to just because so many people have come up afterwards and told me that they've never told their husband or their wife or their parents that this has been happening to them. Um, leaking from your bowels, especially as a result of childbirth, but just sort of generally anyway, is so shameful. People don't talk about it. And that, I think, can sometimes be a quite difficult pathway for older women because it can mean lots of different things so if a doctor finds out about that it's going to be quite complicated for them to sort out 
because there, there's lots of different tests there's lots of different reasons why that might be happening so it's complex and stressful and boring medically speaking it's just got, you know and I read a piece of research that suggested that some doctors were sort of afraid to even bring up bowel incontinence with older women because they because there's not much they can do about it easily and that's outrageous because um, bowel incontinence the people who suffer from it uh, you know older women are the biggest group and we don't think about that as a society that's not where we think it was but it is because of birth injuries and things and when it comes to I think I describe it as like two taboos start co-sleeping when you get two taboos together like depression and incontinence right. or sex and incontinence it's almost like we haven't got the language and and like you say a lot of medical books are quite angry and I understand that especially from women's point of views I've read lots of them and I think there is a lot of medical misogyny and stuff um, and they're terrible around black and minority Asian and uh, women of colour terrible so I understand so much anger PMSL I'm in a very lucky privileged position and I have a health service and I was ballsy enough to talk about it a PMSL isn't ranting about that I can see what's hard for medics as well I mean mine's a love letter to the medics I saw but it's trying to point out that there is a bigger conversation we all need to have because if nobody brings up sex and incontinence with women even when they the ones that show up and say my life is really bothered by this I can't carry on they never bring it up so the women don't have permission to talk about it and continue with this idea that we shouldn't have decent sexual function that we we don't function sexually we're not important sexually once we're no longer childbearing age or we've had our babies or whatever but also nobody gets any practice so they're all bad at it because they, 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 they you know it's like you can be talking to a very experienced doctor and actually they'll have 20 conversations about prolapses in a week but they might only have one conversation about sex because no one brings it up and I think that that's a real issue for them they're not trained in it and then for women because I had people say things to try and be kind and isn't that always the worst beginning of any medical story people just being kind they'll always be kind so kind and they'd say things like this they'd say well your husband still loves you doesn't he he still loves you he has another baby he can't he can't be that bad and it'd be like well I'm so glad I have a husband who didn't leave me because I leaked urine and sometimes feces because I had a difficult birth and my body wasn't really designed to do that very well I'm really glad he didn't but actually that sentence carries with it lots of things that are quite upsetting like am I just a sex toy does it not matter to him that I feel horrible and you know should sex be something where I'm I'd say in the book and I mean it was a very hard chapter to write and I feel always worried there'll be spelling mistakes and things because I couldn't really reread it after I wrote it but I talked about being frightened of my own bedroom you know I I didn't want to do that except for I did because I wanted a relationship with my husband so then I was in this like sex becomes something that's all about anxiety well that's not I mean it's certainly not sexy but I mean it's not healthy or good for you or your relationship I'm not the only woman who's been through that well I know I'm not from the stats just makes me really sad that we can know that that's a factor but not really have found a useful way of telling anyone so I thought well at least if I say hey here's this here's here's I'm going to bring it up at least so I've put it on the table you don't have to do anything but you know it's there yeah and maybe that will help one person to, to think I can go and get some help I mean I also wrote it for myself of course you know for young me it's sort of a the, the book I wish I'd had because I felt very lonely. It's incredibly powerful. And, I, and I, I can only imagine a friend of mine had a baby since I had read your book and we were talking. She didn't specifically, I don't think she specifically indicated she had urinary incontinence or she thought she might. I don't remember how it came up, but I told her about your book and your story. I know enough about being proactive to see the 
the PTs who specialize in pelvic health. And I suggested it to her and I warned her, you know, what, what will happen at that appointment? Like, it's not like your typical PT, they go inside of you and they massage your vaginal cave. And so just be prepared, but they do it gently. I've spoken to some of the experts, but you've got to take, get it taken care of. And she did, and she just had to do a few PT sessions and now she knows how to do proper Kegels. But then the other thing I had learned is that um, certain people need Kegels and certain, and, but it has to be the right Kegel exercises. Cause if you do the wrong ones, it can actually make things worse depending on whatever your situation is. So maybe, so first I just wanted to say that because I wanted to thank you because you helped my friend out. More so what I wanted to do is talk about some of the solutions and warning signs. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the dynamics in healthcare system and the shame. And, and I think you're doing a great job of explaining you know, why it's important to bring this up with your doctor and have that conversation. But what about what can be done just so people are aware? For example, like if you're proactive earlier on, does it help with healing much faster? Is there a greater likelihood of healing? Like, again, I know that you're not a medical professional, but what I have found is when you're dealing with a chronic condition, you kind of almost become a doctor because you read so much (laughs) about it. So I'd love to get your perspective as the patient who's really become quite an expert on the topic, what you would advise people who are struggling. Say if they're struggling, they should go straight away and get some help to find out. Because as you say, I think that's the other thing I meant right at the beginning. And that quote's so evocative. Um, I sort of forgotten I wrote it, but it's so true. Like I think a lot of the information is very bland as well. So yes, exercising your pelvic floor and having a good pelvic floor is important. But for quite a high percentage of women, their their pelvic floor will be too tight, and so they can do kegels, but that's not necessarily going to help they need expert help with doing it right. Also, lots of women do their kegels and they're either bearing down or they're not doing them right because they've never been taught very well. And because it was easy for me to be taught how to do a proper kegel when I finally needed it because somebody's fingers were in my vagina and she was telling me to, you know, so she was literally saying, not that, do this. So I had like an intricate manual guide. But me before when I was pregnant trying to do it that was just me reading these top line information in magazines and having a guess you know like what does it feel like if I don't do a wee or whatever it is so yes there's the kegels that's important and if you start doing those and they're not working after six weeks and you've been doing them a couple of times a day then definitely go to your doctor and ask because there may be such a simple fix for lots and lots of people doing the right exercises will help but if they don't there are several surgeries um, and there are lots of other interventions like using um, machines that will help with the exercises that will give you biofeedback and tell you whether you're doing them right there are machines that measure the strength of the cables you're doing so there's lots of things on the market but I would get seen first because you don't waste hundreds and hundreds of dollars on something that's not going to help you and then there's surgery as well and there's um, pessaries which are like sort of silicon things that you can put in that look like a sort of little ring bigger than an oreo about that sort of big so I'm putting my fingers up you know about an inch or two across and they'll go in almost like a diaphragm did in the older days going and hold up your your walls so there's quite a lot that could be done and there's inventors all the time there's also some medications for some forms of incontinence that that really help so there's all that and I think also it's to remember that you know you do know your body so if you're getting more lax and you're needing to go to the toilet more often waking up at night needing a wee and feeling desperate when you wouldn't normally have done that is a legitimate thing to go and and ask about because it may signal problems you were asking about warning signs if you're finding that I don't know this is also indelicate isn't it but we might as well we've gone quite far if your tampons are falling out or they're coming out of funny shape or they're feeling uncomfortable all the time that might indicate something and it may well not be anything that bad it might just be something like a little bit of a prolapse or something like that 
or it might just be the sort of natural movement of your body as you're getting older because we've sort of half accepted that it's mostly in disgusting jokes that women's breasts sag and are in a different place when they're younger when their face is sag but we don't completely accept it because of all the ways we hide it right um, but you know your vagina does as well and so do your other bits so if that starts to move if you start to feel something weighing and feeling heavy then go and get some help because if you have a prolapse and you do your pelvic floors or you use a pessary you might delay having to have any surgery for 10 15 years in medicine now if you can do your kegels or you get some help whether it's before you've had kids because you leak when you get drunk or when you to go and go for a run or if you go out all night dancing and you find you wet yourself and things if you get some help now you may well be able to cure yourself and you may well be stopping awful problems later on because the problem is we don't educate girls about this when they're nine or ten we tell them a load of information about sex but they're when they're sort of in their mid-teens which is not necessarily the right time to have all these conversations for the rest of our 90 years alive you know it's right. not going to help there are women who are in their teens and 20s now, maybe listening to this, who think, oh, you know, I do sometimes feel a bit like, I, you know, I'm not in control of this, who may well do themselves enormous favours by getting a quick check out now and having a strong pelvic floor going forward. There are women who've had a baby and have no issues who would still be very much helped by doing fairly regular exercises. There are women who've had a C-section who may have been misinformed that that means that they're never going to suffer anything. And that seems to be a massive mythology sent to women. And I totally understand why they feel quite miffed. Right. But pregnancy itself can affect your pelvic floor. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to have any trouble. There were women who've had no kids. And then my friend's a physiotherapist and she was saying she feels really feels for those women sometimes because they'll arrive in clinic and they feel like they're blooming reward for this should have been that they weren't the ones with the mangled bit and they still have ended up with incontinence and things because when there are hormonal changes in your body and you hit menopause for a lot of women that causes incontinence so the That's summary true. is get some help there's lots of help and at any stage in the way you don't have to be someone who had a third or fourth degree tear you don't have to be someone who had birth injuries that people whispered about or pulled a face when you mentioned them it can happen to lots of people there's loads of good news there's loads of good news there's loads of things that can be done and so you can almost certainly improve it or cure it especially if you catch it early the women who are in a terrible state are often women in their 80s or 70s or even even later who never got any help and have been managing at home and sometimes even doing things like using tampons to hold up prolapses and they've just managed for decades and decades and their problems are more complex then. Sometimes they'll have been doing things like not drinking any water so that they don't need a wee. So, and that can cause an irritated, irritate their bladder and things. So you can, you can't, I never want to blame women. You cannot blame women for managing. Heaven knows all of our to-do lists are just like, what, this year? I mean, mine just now stretches out to the street. <laughs> and, and we don't take care of ourselves. We, we're right. sort of primed to just sort of, you know, buy some mascara and that's how we take care of ourselves. That's our self-care, a scented candle, when for many of us, self-care would be a proper physical checkup, actually. But we don't do it. We don't do that, do we? We light a candle and think it's all fine because it's quicker and cheaper for everyone and they don't have to look at these, you know, inconvenient female bodies that people have everywhere, it seems. And so, yeah, get some help that you probably can really help things for the future because it's like an investment in your future self because... Remember, like women in their 80s and 90s now, their mums were never going to live that old or not very often. Right. Yeah? That was unusual. Women who are in their 20s now and their 30s, 
they, they've got such a high likelihood in, in um, richer countries to live to 100, you know, they're going to have as much time postmenopausal or post-birth, if not more, than they had before. They deserve a comfortable vagina, an okay sex life if they want one, and to not be wetting themselves all the time. A bit of investment now might mean that you avoid problems or at least delay them. And the longer you delay them, the problems coming up, the more medical invention there'll be. Because there was no, nothing absolutely. for my grandma in the 20s or 30s, but there there was stuff for me when I was 30 and when we got help. Again, I just have to give you such kudos for putting yourself out there and being so incredibly honest, because that's what we need. We need people to understand the hard truths and realities and, and know that there's options. And I totally respect people who don't want to talk about it, but I hope that by hearing this podcast, reading your book and hearing a lot of the other um, things you've been interviewed on, that at least they can hear your voice and maybe not talk to anyone else, but at least go to their doctor. And that's okay if, if they want to keep it to that. Again, I just really appreciate your voice being out there because it's needed. So what would you say is your greatest hope? And you could speak about urinary incontinence specifically, broadly women's health, what would you say you hope to see transform? Partly, I want, I, I just want a bigger conversation about women's health and women's bodies, but particularly, you know, I, I do think around continence because it is one of the biggest taboos and fecal incontinence even more, both those sorts of incontinence. People just don't talk about it. And in some places they, they really can end up with like devastating impacts on people's quality of life and mental health and physical health ability to earn all those sorts of things and we need a proper conversation and I think also it's really interesting what you just said because that's I'm the last bit of my book really is about that like it's giving people some words they could say things they could do um, ways they could think about it to try and get some help but it's also being very clear if you leak a bit and you don't want surgery you do your kegels and you just think I'm going to wear a pad from one of the well-known providers if I'm on my period and I'm leaking a bit or if I go out for a drink or a run and I'm happy with that, that's that's totally fine. I just it's not I'm not criticizing anyone. I breaks my heart is the woman who doesn't buy those pads and doesn't even do that and stays at home and is isolated and her relationships fall apart. That's what breaks my heart. People thinking that they can't make any kind of informed decision. And that's also the other thing that I, I hope that there are more voices because you said right at the beginning that I, I one of the things I said when I was sort of crying with the doctor, you know, was that I, I sort of snapped because I was like, nobody is talking about this. And I wrote this book and this book is funny and it's sweary and it's rangy and it's long stories and it's all the things you've probably picked up from the way I talk on this. And I, I hope it's loving and, it, and it's full of joy and, it, and it's made people laugh and cry. And I wanted a voice like mine, but you have a voice like yours. And, and I want more people to feel that they could tell their story or that yes. their story deserves to be heard. So mine is just the first voice. And maybe maybe my book won't be an international bestseller. Maybe there will be another brighter voice that does that, all those sorts of things. But that's OK, because the conversation has to start. And, and, it, and if there's silence, there's no conversation. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you for writing this book and your vulnerability. And I'm so sorry for everything you went through. But it, again, it's lovely to talk to people who take a really challenging situation and do something about it. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat.